All right, on that, uh, should we go ahead and pick up our studies of uh, Mark's gospel here? Now, if you remember last week, we closed out uh, the whole discussion on the baptism of Jesus. Um, then uh, we also kind of talked about the baptism of Jesus and how that relates to Christian baptism today, uh, noting uh, definitely that, that Jesus' baptism was not uh, Christian baptism we see today. But then we also talked about some certain similarities uh, from what Jesus' baptism was to what ours is today. Uh, then we moved on right after this great thing that happens, the baptism of Jesus, the, t- the heavens open up, Holy Spirit comes down, we hear the voice of God, right? This is great. And then what happens? Boom, right off the bat, Jesus, then the devil enters right in, right? And we talked about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Mark 1, 12 through 13. A little bit uh, more of an explanation in Matthew as we looked at, but uh, did get through that in Mark. Um, then we talked about Jesus then beginning his ministry and proclaiming the gospel and saying, Jesus saying, and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We talked about that some too. So, okay, so that's where we left off then. Today we're going to delve into Jesus calling the first disciples. But before we do that, why don't we open with the invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, good. So if you guys want to turn to your Bibles, um, if you have it in front of you, and if, if you have your Lutheran Study Bible, it's on page 1656. And we'll go ahead and start. It's Mark 1.16. You can see these divisions here. I'm just going to follow the divisions then throughout kind of Mark for a while, just on each new heading. Uh, so we saw Jesus begins his ministry, which we talked about last week and today. We'll take this section, Jesus calls the first disciples, and then we'll just keep moving on, kind of based on each one of those sections. Um, Okay, so Jesus calls the first disciples. I'll read kind of this section, then we'll kind of go back to it and talk about it. So verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So, okay, this is good. To, I know you guys are familiar with this. Just a few things. And if, if anyone has anything to chime in with me as well, uh, please feel free to do so. So, we see here at the beginning, this Simon and Andrew. Of course, as we will come to know, that Simon is actually Peter. Um, and, and, and we see that Simon is mentioned first. 
Um, some people speculate, obviously, if this is the first of the disciples, and we know Peter becomes kind of prominent within the disciples and actually maybe becomes the spokesman of the apostolic group later on. So here we go. Peter is the first. So Simon is Peter and his brother Andrew. Um, and recall, as I talked about at the beginning, it's interesting, you know, we talk about Peter. Well, you'll see Mark kind of focuses on Peter a lot around, uh, in, his, in, in his gospel here. And as I said before, Remember, Peter gets a lot of his, all of the writing from the preaching and teaching of Peter. So we'll see Peter obviously come up a lot here. So Peter, the first one, and then we see Peter and Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I think uh, most people will agree that they were probably professional fishermen, just not out doing this as a hobby on that day. So professional fishermen, I think we can all safe to assume here. So we got... Um, Okay, so verse uh, 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now Jesus is making this call to Peter and Andrew, right? And what's he doing? He's kind of talking in their language, right? Here they are, everyday fishermen, this stuff. So uh, Jesus is speaking to them in their language when he says this. And when we think about this, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. What does this mean? Uh, I think it means that Jesus is going to train them for you know, a far greater work than they're doing here. And it is really then to teach and preach the gospel for salvation. Um, and he is singling these two out for this great work of being chosen apostles. Now we'll see two more. And we know that more, more and more are chosen. But here at the beginning, we're going to see there's four of them. So the call here, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Um, it's unmistakable, right? Jesus is calling them. Follow me. Uh, follow behind me. Become my disciples is what he's saying here. And, you know, his promise, I think, is very comprehensive when you look at it in this whole sense of, Making fishers of men, it's uh, it's comprehensive that, that they will be fishers of men. The question is, is then what does the fishers of men mean? Um, these, obviously, I think most of us agree. Most commentators agree that these are fishers of men, or it's this endeavor um, that they'll they'll be directed towards the souls of the men to bring them into the net of Christ, so to speak, to make them members of the communion. Of the saints. So that's what's going on here. Anybody have any different thoughts on that? I think it's pretty, this concept of fisher of men and metaphor here, what they're doing. It's, these, these are being called into the office of ministry, really, uh, to, to, to bring people in and to, to teach about Jesus. And as we know in Matthew 28, to, to teach and then to baptize. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, the study note had a good uh, follow-up on that, I think. Let's see, one, one seventeen. So it, it, Jesus, it says, one seventeen. Jesus' practice contrasts sharply with that of other rabbis who were chosen by those who wanted to follow their teaching. Jesus, however, chooses those whom he wishes to follow him. Like fishermen then, Jesus' disciples were likewise expected to draw others into the kingdom. So that, that's a good kind of on that. Any questions or anything further on that? No? All right. 
So what happens next? Yes, Barry. Uh, this uh, mentioning that uh, these disciples would be directing the souls of, of people into the net of Christ. That's a visual. Uh, mm-hmm. But the other visual that I recall from Galatians was that uh, the law is a, a schoolmaster which directs you to Christ also. So these are in parallel, I guess. You know, what do they point, call yeah. them? Is it a metaphor? Or what? Is well, this it, would be a metaphor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Metaphor. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, those are parallel. So the law is what is what the disciples might use Basically, as part of the uh, collective way to drive them into the net, right? Yeah. To, yeah, I guess to towards the gospel. Yeah, but I think it the it's even more than that. I think it's the whole teaching, right? That's what Matthew twenty eight about the directive given to the disciples to teach. You know, really to teach and then uh, and and you know teach the entire word of God. Uh, so I think that's right. That's right. Yep. That's what they're to do. And to push into the net, I think that's a good metaphor. And that's what this metaphor is here with two, with the fishers of men. Anything else on that? All right. So after Jesus then says this, we look at uh, verse 18. What happens? And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now just think about how astounding this is, okay? You're out there. Think of, you know, doing your occupation, you're fishing, and some man just comes up to you and says, hey, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And what do they do? It's just astounding. Immediately, they left their nets and, and followed him. So really, this call, they did it at once, you know, without the slightest hesitation. They didn't think, and they followed him. And, but so the question is, though, why? I mean, if someone were to follow, ask, come to me and say something less, would that be our response? Well, and it's Jesus, yes, but I think that's what, what's going on here. Notice then what's happening is it's Jesus' command is really working a, a response, an, an immediate and really a far-reaching response on these people. Think about it. They're giving up their livelihood to do this. And why, why would this happen? Well, it's kind of fairly obvious, though. The first, though, I think the foremost is, is this is showing about the, the Word, Jesus' Word, the effective working of the Word. When Jesus speaks, things happen, right? Um, that's what's going on here. It's Jesus and His Word. Second, as we'll see later here in a bit in verse 22, you know, Jesus also really has a commanding presence, and He he exudes this authority because who he is. He's the Son of God, but he also is God. And we'll talk about that in 22. So that's what's going on. You know, it's the Jesus' word. And when Jesus speaks, things happen. He speaks, follow me, right? And they do. They give up their business. So I just think it's all very astounding to think to what these guys, you know, did. But again, it's the command of Jesus. And they do this, right? Any follow-up thoughts or questions on that? Okay, Um, verses 19 through 20 then. And going on a little farther, he saw, farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So similar, right? Similar with with Peter and Andrew. Immediately, um, he called them, um, and 
it says that they, they were in their boat mending the nets, so I think we can safe to again to assume that these peop- these two were professional fishermen, right? Uh, they were busy with their work. Uh, of course, professional fishermen because they were mending the nets. And at the call of Jesus, um, right off the bat, they proved themselves as willing to get up and go as Peter and Andrew had been. They had left their father in the boat with their hired assistant. So same response to the word, same response to what Jesus says, things happen. And he also has this authority to, to, to speak this way and make these commandments, to command people. Um, verse, uh, the, I think again the, the study note here says James and John's fishing business was large enough that it supported laborers from outside the family. Walking away from this business therefore meant leaving a successful trade and a relatively secure future. Think about that. That is true, right? This business, everything, and they give it all away um, at the command of Jesus and go. They didn't even know who, you know, who he was, and they just go. So I think it's very astounding. So, um, again, Jesus' command is, is, is working this immediate and far-reaching response here. Um, so now the Lord has four men that have been pledged to be his regular disciples and to be trained for the great work of preaching the gospel throughout the world. So this is the first four here called disciples. Um, one other thing I thought kind of interesting on this is about calling the ordinary. Um, you know, we can see the grace of God in calling these four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You know, they didn't seek out Jesus, of course. Jesus sought them. And Jesus initiated this. But isn't it interesting who Jesus go to? I guess he looked at kind of some blue-collar, right, untrained theologians. Fishermen, this is who Jesus calls to be his disciples. He doesn't go to the people in the synagogue and find the most well-trained person, right? He just goes for the ordinary. And, and here, as throughout the Bible, God in his grace chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And that's in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So it's consistent. But if you ever thought about that, Jesus is the first, just, just regular blue-collar guys go, and they're going to be the disciples. So I think that's pretty amazing. Any other thoughts, questions on that? Anything further? All right. Okay. It's interesting to me, you know, the two natures of Christ, fully human, fully divine. You know, we got to remember they're always in operation, the two natures, even at times like this. And, you know, when he's attractive to the disciples, you know, is it his human nature that's uh, attractive or, or, or just always the divine? I don't, I don't know, but it's it it's an interesting to think. Yeah, to it think is about. an interesting thing, right? Right. We have to say probably, it, you know, the divine and human are always there and in communication with each other and working. And you have to say at the end of the day, it's got to be his divine nature because how many other people, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a he is fully human. That's right. But what if so? Like I said, some guy in the street just walks up and says, "Hey, quit your job and come follow me." You're like, I think you're crazy, yeah, but. 
Right. I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. His fully human is sinless. So it's not like us in our sin nature. I'm trying to sell you something or get oh, you yeah, to yeah, do yeah. something. It, it's his sinless yeah. human nature that's... That might be pretty attractive. Yeah, I think so, too. That's exactly right. Yeah, Good, good. Mm-hmm. Just a quick comment. I, I didn't notice this before, but here the early uh, adoption or you know, recruiting of the uh, disciples, uh, they became the inner core. That is right. Uh, and he brought them in pairs, which brothers from family. So that, that was an interesting, uh, and we all become brothers in, in Christ, you know, but he... I just wanted to share that. Yeah, that is. That is a good point. I think Pastor's going to have a comment on that too, yeah. And just one quick addition. In John's Gospel, we get a little bit more of the backstory that this wasn't their first time meeting Jesus. It's not like Jesus was like, hey, you, on the boat. Who, me? Yeah, you. Follow me. I'll make you fish as a man. They're like, well, okay, what's your name? That, you know, <laughs> John's Gospel gives us uh, the backstory that... Um, they were connected with the ministry of John the Baptist. In all likelihood, they had been baptized by him. They were looking for the Messiah. And so then on the day the Lord does, in fact, call them, uh, he is a known entity to them. Not to take away from the operation of the Holy Spirit, of right. course, that they indeed drop their vocations and mm-hmm. go and follow him. Very good. Good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're leading me to think, too, Christ didn't pick uh, Pharisee or scribes or people connected with the temple, but right. in an out-of-the-way place, Galilee, what good can come out of Nazareth, and all that stuff. And Christ himself worked with stone and wood. Good point. Yeah, that is good. That is true. Yeah, I just think, yeah, that's right. What good could come out of Galilee? True. Okay. Thank you. Any other further comment on that? Okay. So why don't we move on then. We'll go to the next uh, section here. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. There's kind of two sections to that. So there's the first is kind of the, his preaching here. We'll see through verses uh, 22. So I'll read this here. Uh, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribe. So let's just kind of take a look at this real quick before we see then what immediately happens here with the unclean spirit. So again, this pericope here is really the first actions of Jesus' ministry kind of towards the outside, not within his inner circle of disciples, but it's the, the outside, as it were. This represents kind of the first manifestation as Jesus is God, and we'll see this in this whole story. And then it's really the first confrontation with forces opposed to Jesus, who we'll see after that. So um, in verse uh, we went through 21 uh, through 22. Of course, Jesus went into the synagogue in Jerusalem. Recall that uh, worship, really worship took place at the temple. But in cities other than Jerusalem, however, uh, which had no temple, they had a synagogue, which actually means assembly. So it was an assembly where they had Jewish worship in the smaller towns outside of Jerusalem. And so but synagogues were 
located in, in, in all over, but most of the leading towns in Israel. So that's where Jesus is coming into the synagogue, the assembly, where Jewish worship was taking place. Okay, And then what did he do? He began to teach. Um, and again, I've, I've said this before, since the word of Jesus is critical, I think, to the gospel of Mark, it's not surprising then that we see right off the bat then the teaching is the first section, uh, there's a kind of the focus of this first section here, and then the healing of the unclean spirit. So again, Mark putting emphasis on Jesus' teaching. And here we see a manner of Christ's teaching. So on the Sabbath, he went in into the synagogue, and I think following a Jewish custom, he was actually given the right to address the assembly, um, to give them an explanation of the scripture. This took place. Um, which we, but it was usually done by one of the elders of the synagogue who would give this thing called a memar or a talk. Well, Jesus was given this opportunity to do this on this day. And, of course, the immediate uh, impression was um, profound. Uh, they, and what they said they were astonished. Okay, so we read that he, he gets up, speaks in the synagogue. He's teaching, right? And then in verse 20, and they were astonished. Uh, astound, astonished. Okay, the Greek word here is ekplexo, ekplesso. It's a very strong verb. It's kind of the. It's like being struck by a blow. So the people were kind of being struck by a blow. I mean, it's like they were being hit over the head with a baseball bat. In our metaphors today, really, on Jesus's teaching, right? They were astonished by what he taught. The question is, why so? Why were they so astonished? Okay, we see this here. They were astonished because he taught them as one who had authority. And this is the authoritative power that that filled this wonderful teacher. It's the deity of Jesus revealing itself in what he says. It came out as an overwhelming force here from his speaking with authority. And this was then in contrast to the scribes. Now, what this means then is when you compare what Jesus was saying with the scribes, is the scribes' kind of authority and teaching was derived from the teaching of their elders and their forefathers, right? This is where the scribes are kind of teaching from. But, it, but again, we don't know exactly what Jesus is saying, but there was something about it when he was speaking. It was clear that he was uniquely authorized by the Father in heaven to speak this way. His authority is coming from the Father in heaven, but actually is a direct authority as to his deity or as, as God, right, speaking. So this must have been manifest within this teaching here, right? And this is what the authority, this is why they were astonished. And this is why, you know, they thought he spoke with this authority because he is God speaking the word of God, right? Luther had an interesting uh, comment on this. He says, uh, with authority, that is, his preaching was as of one that means it with all seriousness. And what he said had the power and live as though it had hands and feet. So, very interesting. Um, so, that clearly, the authority that was made manifest, uh, people were astonished by this. So, But again, what we are seeing here, this, with this whole, I said, start about, he went preaching and teaching, and this authority uh, is again, this is an initial indication of Jesus' mission, which is fundamentally oriented not towards the miracles and stuff we're seeing, but rather toward the proclamation and the importance of the word. Okay? 
So Mark has this set up here specifically. And I think that's kind of the main part. But then what then also comes after this? Um, we see that um, a man with a con- unclean spirit. But before I get to that, I want to say one more thing. So I think in summary here, these two, what we're seeing here, these two uh, first verses before we get into the unclean spirit is, this is really one of the first disciples where his, the first instances where the disciples you know, are seeing this too, and they're, they're also faced face-to-face with Jesus' final authority here. Um, and I think we see that too for us too today. That's what it is, the Word of God and Jesus. Christ is more than just a wise teacher or a moral or a model or a pattern to live our lives, right? He's the one who in word and deed reveals to us the underserved love of God for sinners incorporated into his own purpose. And his is the final word. That's what we're seeing right here off the bat early in his ministry. So, you know, the thoughts on that or questions about this, what happened here? I wish we knew exactly what he was saying. That would be great. But uh, our Lord doesn't give that to us. But really cool to see exactly what Jesus was saying. So. I was just thinking maybe the authority like as in being an author as if he had written it himself or as if he owned it or knew it so well that he owned it. I think that's exactly right. And yeah, that's what, think, that's what, what. What's the question of uh, what would the Greek term that was used there that where authority was used what the, what was the Greek term? I, uh, I see. I, yeah. An ex- a clear-cut example, not from this gospel, but from Matthew's, of Jesus speaking with authority and not as the scribes. Okay, remember on the Sermon of the Mount when he says, "You have heard that it was said of old," and he's and he's at some places at least specifically quoting Moses and the Torah. But I say to you, I mean, just imagine. Just imagine if I said from the pulpit, <laughs> you have heard Matthew say to you, but I say to you, yeah. right? So there's the indication of how he's speaking. You know, it's not that he has like an extra deep voice. Right? <laughs> how he's speaking with authority um, is he's actually quoting the scriptures and quoting himself in their lead as their author and as one who speaks with the same authority as they. Hopefully that gives you a concrete example. And so does that term, uh, would you say ecclesia? Uh, exousia is the authority, yeah. Is there any uh, relation between that and some Greek term for writing? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. You said for writing? I'm sorry. I yeah, for writing, like as an author, like if there were mm-hmm. I mean, the scribes are going to say, this is what the word says, or this is what Rabbi Gamaliel says, or, I mean, the scribes, and I'm not really cutting them down, the scribes are going to sound a lot like us as pastors. This is what the word says. This is what God says, right? But Jesus comes and says, not only is this what God says, but this is also what I say. And that's what is amazing and astonishing people, such that they think he's speaking as a one with authority and not as the scribes. I think that's the important part. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Any other questions on that? Thank you. It's good points there.
Okay, so we talked about authority in comparison to the scribes then. So, Okay, so then what happens next? Okay, right after here and immediately, let's look at uh, uh, verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere and throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So immediately here, this is interesting, just as Jesus faced Satan immediately after his baptism, right in the temptation, so also here, Jesus here is met uh, by a demon-possessed man at the beginning of his teaching ministry. Um, Why then is the spirit, this is kind of interesting, why is the spirit described as unclean, let's say unclean and not evil? Well, cleanliness and uncleanliness, you know, play a really large role in Mark's Gospels, especially in chapter 7, which we'll talk about later. But, uh, but the, of course, here the unclean spirit is to be seen as demonic, right? The devil and the demons are spiritually unclean. They are filthy before God. But I think there's more going on here. Remember uh, this word play with this unclean. We talked about John's baptism um, provided, I think is kind of providing the background of why Mark's speaking in this way. Is John, remember, uh, baptized to prepare people for the coming Messiah? Uh, again, John's baptism was a washing the people of their uncleanliness, which was idolatry and sin, so that they may repent and so receive the, the coming of their Lord. Uh, washing, as we know all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, denotes uh, cleanness. Cleanness is a here a prerequisite for and characteristic of the reign and rule of God, which is coming, and that's what John's baptism was. Um, but then to be unclean then is to be unwashed and therefore not repentant, which means not ready for and under the, the God's kingdom here. So this is this language, unclean spirits are part of the realm that is not of the realm of God's kingdom. In fact, they're alien to it and they are resistant. So I think that's why John's using this word unclean spirit of just go ahead and coming out and say it's a demon or the devil. But it, the coming of Israel's Lord and the person of Jesus Christ, such unclean spirits will be overcome by the kingdom of God as demonstrated here, as we see. So that's uh, uncleanliness here. So what happens then? And immediately there was this guy, unclean spirit, and he cried out. What have you do? What did he cry out? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's interesting. We hear over and over that the demons, when they look at Jesus, they know who he is, right? Um, so this, this demon then, or his evil, unclean spirit, has taken possession of this man's body, using his, you know, his members to do all his bidding, to speak and everything. 
And it was the evil spirit that cried out at the sight of Jesus, affirming, okay, that he, the Jesus of Nazareth, and then the, the demon had nothing in common. That he and all the demons belong to a company which are and always to be at variance with the Son of God, okay? So he's speaking this way. His cry actually is a cry of fear. How do we know that? He says, have you come to destroy us? Um, by to destroy them by chaining, chaining them in hell forever or whatever. So right off the bat, there's fear within the, the, the demon. Um, also, he says this. He says, the demon, have you come to destroy us? Plural. Um, let's look at the, the study note. I thought the study note did a good, you know, us or... It's either more than one demon possessed this man... Or Jesus' attack on one demon was a declaration of war on them all. So could be two reasons why that uh, is used. Us there. Okay. Then he goes on and the demon makes this, the, 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 I think, the big statement here. I, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Now, where do we see this, the Holy Son of God? We see it... Uh, in a couple places in the Bible, in John six sixty nine, 69, uh, in talking about Jesus, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In Revelation uh, 3, 7, we see this language, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one is open. So, Confirming it here, the scripture talks about Jesus is the Holy One of God, and then here this demon is saying this as well. And Jesus was holy or is holy, clearly. He's sinless in all his life and work. He's above sin and death. And he possesses power to destroy the demons, and thus is really a terror to the demon world. So I think that's what's going on here. Any further up thoughts on any of that, which I've said so far? Think I'm saying anything controversial? Yeah. Say that again, if they can hear. Yeah. I was just thinking it's it's almost like the man with the unclean spirit is like the old Adam. Have you come to destroy us? Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? They think of the baptism, the old Adam, then a baptism. The the old Adam is daily drowned. Is that kind of what you're getting out there? That kind of similar comparison? Yeah, I think that's cool. I haven't thought of that. So, all right. Okay. So the Holy One of God, after this then, we see it, but when, when the demon says this, this, what's the first thing that Jesus does? He rebukes him, basically tells him, shut up. <laughs> okay? Just right off the bat, Jesus has rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Um, so Jesus really making his business known by rebuking this demon and bidding him to hold his peace and come out of this man. What's going on? I don't know Jesus just doesn't want to hear the testimony of this demon. Okay, so he shuts shuts him up right off the bat, and Jesus orders the demon to leave his victim. I mean, um, so very. You know, these people are seeing this uh, very uh, astonishing what's happening here. Jesus is telling them to be quiet and then come out of him. So then what does happen then in response after Jesus says, Be silent and come out of him. 
and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out from him. So the demon, forced against his evil will to obey, I think he tried to do one thing to prevent this from happening. He convulses the has this body, and I guess one last effort to harm the body of his victim, him, threw him into a spasm, and then with the last great screaming cry, he goes out forth from the man. Demon comes out. So, I mean, here again, so we talk about at the beginning, Jesus is teaching his authority. Okay, not only that, his authority and teaching. The next thing that happens immediately here is this another show of this other absolute authority over all things, right? Over all creatures, not only in heaven and earth, but also under the earth, the spirits. It's Jesus has absolute authority in it, both his teaching and absolute authority over all things. And that's what's going on here. He is the master and Lord also of all of the evil spirits. Um, okay. Any further up thoughts on that? Discussions, Barry? Well, uh, this opens up a big uh, area of thought for me, at least. Um, exhortation and, and bringing out unclean spirits. Uh, it seems in our society now we send them to, uh, you know, therapists and treat it with medicine. In your opinion, I mean, are a lot of the issues uh, spiritual and exhortation should be... Uh, are you saying exorcism? Is that exorcism. Exorcism. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. Exorcism. I, I'm having a hard time hearing. So exhortation is what you're doing. I'm sorry. <laughs> exorcism. Yeah. Exorcism, yeah. I mean, if you could just comment on that in, in light of the current... Uh, you know. Boy, yeah. Boy, I don't know. I may have to... This is where I might pull my vicar card and say, uh, Pastor, help. <laughs> Pastor, do you have any thoughts on that, on this the, the, today, what Barry was asking about, exorcism today and things like that? Hard to do it justice in a short comment. I'll try real quick. And this was noted by uh, I, an observation of C.S. Lewis, where there's uh, two extremes that the devil would like to push us into. The one extreme, that he doesn't exist, and the other extreme, that he's everywhere active. So you can think of other parts of the world that are animistic in nature. Mm. And my example is learning from a Lutheran exorcist in Africa that it's not uncommon to get about 14 exorcisms before breakfast. So the idea is that you're, there's constantly demons everywhere, and under every tree and every rock and every mood swing is some sort of demon afflicting you. And so he's everywhere, and so you're constantly in need of exorcism. That would be falling into the camp of the devil everywhere. He doesn't, in fact, have that kind of power. But over here in the West, the devil's strategy has been to convince us that he doesn't exist. It's probably the more pernicious strategy. And so he does not... Uh, frequently or with the same frequency engage in the overt tactics of bodily possession and the kind of thing that we see much more frequently in the scriptures. So it does happen here in the West, but it has been rarer than other parts of the world. We think we know what the devil's strategy is in that. Part of it I do, I do think, and this may be an unpopular opinion, is that because the West has been more ostensibly influenced by the gospel and by Christendom. 
there is a sense that uh, perhaps the devil has also been kept at bay from these uh, manifestations. And that as that is rejected by the people and by the culture, and as we return to paganism, there seems to be, if, if only anecdotally, an uptick in these kinds of uh, manifestations and bodily possessions. So that many of the exorcists, uh, they're much more popular, of course, within Roman Catholicism, but there are Lutheran pastors who have performed exorcisms as well. And they are at least anecdotally describing an uptick in this kind of phenomenon here in the West as the West pushes away uh, its Christian heritage. So those are some things to consider and maybe the best I can do in a brief comment. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's good. Any other follow-up? We had another follow-up here. This is making me think this is quite a revelation to me about Africa, but I'm thinking in our world, the devil approaches more slyly the way he did in the Garden of Eden. And he's talking to, did God really say that? We have, having recently uh, watched an agnostic atheist, he's very bright and very articulate in his opposition to God. Yeah, I think that matches in the devil works in different ways, right? So that's exactly right. So, yeah, but certainly we know that demons are still very prevalent today in society and uh, will be until the coming, the second coming of our Lord. So, good. Any other thoughts on any other demons? I think Chris, there. Yeah, that thing that I've heard that Mark. Uh, became the founder of the Coptic Church. Yeah, we just talked about that. Yeah. I wonder if there's some connection there between the animism in Africa and and this passage in Mark. I don't know. It's just a... Oof. Anybody know that? I mean... I just looked it up. Oh, good, good, good. I looked at the Coptic Church. Uh, mentions uh, that Mark is one of their uh, primary saints and that he established the church in Africa. I don't know, that's something that we, I, yeah, maybe I should look into. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know pastor would know the answer to that, but if not, I can kind of look into it. But that is very interesting. don't know. Good thought. Any other thoughts? Demons? No? Okay, so uh, we see then that the, the demon uh, leaves this, his victim. And then what happens next? We see in verse 27... And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So effect, the effect of this miracle, coming immediately after his previous address, then you know, it's another, another deep impression. You know, we've got one right after another. And it's, we see they were all amazed. So it's just like a double amazement. They're amazed when he first starts speaking to them, right, about his authority. And then this happens. Can you imagine that? Casts out this demon. And now it's just a double. So two things in this whole thing that we looked at then, what, what there, the amazement is going on first. And what it says is a new teaching with authority. Again, that refers back to, in addition, 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them with authority. Now he's got this other authority who can cast out demons. And I think that's second here, the power. He's, Jesus has the power over the demons. Jesus needs only to utter a word. And then these demons helplessly, they can't do anything, they're gone. It does remind me, I know uh, in uh, Luther's uh, A Mighty Fortress, right? What is that, 656? Now, I've seen different, heard different variations of this, but it still is, uh, it's verse 3, stanza 3, excuse me. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scouse fierce as he wills, he can harm us none, he's judged the deed is done. One little word can fail him. Isn't that great? I've heard different, different, on, uh, different thoughts on the word. I think Pastor Rody, I think most people say it's uh, calling the devil a liar. That's it. I heard other people argue that it's this is the word is, this is my body in the Lord's Supper. But in any event, it's kind of, I thought that was neat to tie in Luther in this here. It's the word, right? One little word. And that's what Jesus does here with the demons. Little word, and uh, it's his word. Any other thought on that? Anybody heard any other explanations in the? Yeah. Mm hmm. It's interesting that he won't let the devil get that one little word. He <laughs> silenced them immediately. Just be silent. Yeah. In another area. Um, Scripture, he does the same. So, I'm sorry, what's that? In other scripture, he yeah. does the same, where he just silences the devil. Yeah, yeah. No word power there. Right, right. Isn't that great? He doesn't, you know, doesn't want to give him a platform. Doesn't care what they have to say. It's just, you know, shut up. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a platform to testify, especially you know here in the synagogue. This guy doesn't need Jesus. This is his place. This is his word. Why let him speak? Just be quiet. All right. A theory from a Wells pastor who involved extensively in some research and in exorcism and so on, he believes the, word, the simple word is just Jesus. The demons are terrified of his name. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we kind of see that here. Jesus, he's, they said, he cried out, What have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, that's his name, right? Right off the bat, his name. It's who he is. Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One. Yeah, that's right. Just his whole essence, right? Who he is, the Holy One. I have to Jesus. Interesting. Anybody? Anybody else? All right. Good. Okay. Then in verse 28, what happens, and you know, now he's just got this guy in here, he's teaching with authority, does this with the, you know, cast out this unclean spirit, and what happens in verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I guess no surprise there, right? <laughs> right? Of course, the news would have spread like wildfire, I guess, everywhere in the whole region. 
Um, Jesus here had given undisputable evidence that he was, you know, the Holy One of God who had come into the world destroy, to destroy the works of the devil and to deliver all men from the bondage of sin. It's like kind of this looks at, here is Jesus is at kind of the height of his ministry, just right off the bat, right? Just right up here, the height of his ministry. This has just happened. All the land is filled with fame, right? But as we know now, as we're going to get further into Mark, this will slowly start to fade, right? Jesus on his way to the cross. So maybe height of his ministry. I mean, some we'll see some other things, but uh, right off the bat here, fame spread across everywhere. Um, so, okay, any other further discussions on this? We'll, we can move on to, I think we can get through uh, healing of Peter's mother-in-law, unless you guys have any further thoughts or questions on this. Yeah? Okay, so why don't we just jump into, um, well, let's see, let's go. Let's start here, Jesus Hills Mini is the title. Go to verse 29. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, which is Peter, and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now Mark again tells this story, maybe a little bit uh, more attention to detail than Matthew does, again, People keep saying, uh, commentators I read, it's because Peter is involved in this. Um, again, Mark being uh, uh, listening to Peter's preaching when he writes this. But we see here right off the bat again and immediately. Uh, so Mark is calling again attention again to this, another miracle here by saying immediately. Um, so the two brothers here, which is Simon, which is Peter and Andrew, is a text here really explicitly states that they had a house, right? Simon, and this was in the Capernaum area. Jesus and the four disciples now go to this house. And this is interesting, though. Here we learn that Peter was married. So we're talking about his mother-in-law, okay? Uh, but reading, this is a really funny quote. I got to tell you guys this. This is out of the Linsky commentary I'm talking about. I guess Linsky writes, on this text... And then on the basis of 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it is certain that Peter's wife was living at the time and accompanying him on his missionary journeys. But this is the funny part. All this is rather inconvenient for Catholicism, which makes Peter the first pope and demands celibacy of its priests. <laughs> so there we go. Peter was married. The first pope was married. So, Amen. Okay, so it's Peter's mother-in-law. Just as they then the four of them had entered the house, the members of the household, especially um, uh, Peter and Andrew, were told about Peter's mother being very sick. She had a bad fever, uh, clearly sick. Um, Jesus, in turn, just goes right at it. He uses his his work, his sympathy here. Goes to her couch. He lifted or raised her up by taking hold of her hand. Um, and at the same time, he rebuked her fever. That's actually out of Luke, but rebuked her fever, and it left her at once. So Jesus grasped by grasping. Jesus doesn't hesitate to touch those with whom he interacts, including the untouchables, such as lepers. We'll talk about that maybe next time we get that. 
And again, Peter's mother-in-law, her full strength was restored to her in this moment. She was able to arise and then serve them all. I guess her way of expressing gratitude. Here again, Christ, um, not only here is commanding demons out, right, the first is memory, but he's able to heal. He's stronger than all the powers of destruction, whether it be the demons or various afflictions over the body. We see this um, right off the bat here. Um, any further thoughts or questions on that? Other thing people can think of that I didn't just... Okay. Well, when we go on just a little bit more, then for um, also then a kind of a follow up, and then healing various other diseases. So, Mark one thirty two through thirty four. Um, that evening, then at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So we got both sides of it, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Here we go, that same thing again we talked about, shutting the demons up. So Jesus has little chance to rest. He gets there to Mark's mother-in-law's house, heals her, and then uh, all of a sudden the people... Uh, started bringing uh, their uh, sick people in. They waited until the Sabbath was passed, um, but they brought to him, they carried people who were in bad shape, sick, those not feeling well, together with people who were possessed by demons. Again, this is because, remember, his fame has just spread quickly. So this is just the inhabitants of the city now know this and are come together and they're bringing and assembling at the door here and bringing all these people. So no matter what the disease was, obviously there must have been many different forms of sicknesses represented in this great multiple multitude, probably from all different seriousnesses. He, we'd have to think he healed them. He cast out many demons by a word of command from him. They had to leave their victims and take their go somewhere else. The whole city here we see here was gathered at the door. Not clear as to whether people were really... This is interesting, not clear whether they were responding to Jesus' preaching when we talked about on the rule and reign of God and what he is or whether they were simply seeking out a wonder worker. I don't know the answer to that question. I researched it. It's not really. We don't, we don't know. So what, what, why were people coming? Um, either or probably. Again, Christ did not permit the demons to speak. I'll say one more thing on this. I know we talked... Um, why would he do this again? They would have shouted out their knowledge of his deity and, and Messiahship as, as he did in 20, they did in 24, as we talked about. But as we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to hear about this kind of this secret secrecy motif, kind of. Jesus discourages people and unclean spirits from speaking about him. And we're going to see that on uh, a number of verses and, and chap- chapters and verses throughout the book of Mark. So Jesus exercises his authority to guide um, the speaking of his popularity, which he had brought him in, into com- conflict with political leaders. So, you know, I think he, he, there is this thought about this, is that this name spreading is going to cause this. And so I think uh, he's wanting to really reveal himself in his way to the people of Galilee in his own way. And hit his own time, not kind of what other 
spreading out. So I think that's kind of part of this, why Jesus is telling people to be quiet, in addition to just telling the demons, not giving them any platform uh, to discuss. Um, I did want to say one, I want to show you one more thing before you, let me just pass out a couple of these. I think that's, this hymn, it's hymn 557 NTLH. Let you guys, unfortunately, it's not in the LSB. But just to close up this. Well, in this hymn, kind of, I think this is a good kind of summary of all, all we're seeing with the casting out of the demons and the healing. Did everybody get one? This is not an LSB, but this is in uh, the old red hymnal, if you guys can remember here. Just just read a little bit here. It's called, At Even When the Sun Did Set. Of course, it's going to be our old. So it's At Evening When the Sun Did Set. It's 557 in TLH. At evening when the sun did set, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. Oh, and what diverse pains they met. Oh, with what joy they went away. Once more tis eventide, and we, oppressed with various ills, draw near. What if thy form uh, we cannot see? We know and feel that thou art here. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel, for some are sick and some are sad, and some have never loved thee well, and some have lost the love they had. And some are pressed with worldly care, and some are tried with sinful doubt. And some such grievous passions tear that only thou canst cast them out. Let's see. Let's go to verse 7 and 8. O Savior Christ, thou too art man. Thou hast been troubled, tempted, tried. Thy kind but searching glance can scan the very wounds that shame would hide. Thy touch has still its ancient power. No word from thee can fruitless fall. Here in this solemn evening hour, and in thy mercy, heal us all. So I thought that was cool. It's a, actually a, a, a hymn. You see the verse Mark 1, 32 through 34, kind of summing up uh, what we talked about. Really cool, cool thing. Don't, I don't know the tomb. I should have looked it up. I, w- I would have said we can sing it, but I don't remember the tomb. So... In any event, good stuff. Okay, so I've kept you over about a minute over. I appreciate everybody. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. The Lord be with you. Thank you.